This morning we start a new series, just three messages. I've entitled it, Christ Our Love. It's going to be um, taking us all the way through Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, We did a series called Christ Our Faith in chapter 11, Christ Our Hope in chapter 12, and now Christ Our Love in chapter 13. For this morning, I really only intend to get through about the first six verses or so of this chapter, and then we will cover the rest of them over the next several weeks. So, Hebrews chapter 13, if you have arrived there, please listen carefully as I read. This is God's Word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If there is one theme that runs throughout all of the scriptures that is meant to define and to categorize the individual believer and the church as a collection of believers, it is love. Love is the singular defining characteristic. It is the ingredient in every other virtue. It's the ultimate pursuit of everything that is aimed at in the Christian life and within the church. It is what fuels it. It is what undergirds it. It is what controls it. It is what compels it. And it all comes from the God who is the God of love who gives it. In fact, it is His love, the Scripture says, that is shed abroad in our hearts. It literally fills us up to the point of overflowing, and that spillover is what benefits all the other Christians within the body of Christ and even the watching world. Love is not just an emotion that you're supposed to generate towards one another. It's not just a good thing that makes life worth the living. It is not something that you pursue in order to amplify relationship. It is something that is actually as indispensable to life within the body of Christ as air is for the human body. So it's absolutely appropriate that the writer to the Hebrews puts love as the capstone of everything that he has written so far in this amazing letter or sermon or decree, that as he reaches the point where it is not so much the climax of the argument of the book, but the the climax of the rhetoric, the climax of the sermon, it's the point that would be taken and put on the highlight reel, if this were to be provided, it is that part that is clipped out and is watched over and over again, this is the point that everything has been leading up to. All of the doctrine of the first 12 chapters now leads to this precious and beautiful application, and I will say to you from the outset that it is definitively instructive. 
that there is a command involved. In fact, the sermons will get increasingly closer towards the real final point, which is the love not just for the brethren, as we'll see today, or the love for the truth, as we'll see next week, but the week after Christmas, the love we have for the law. And so the very end of this statement of this letter, of this sermon, is actually going to appear to head towards unraveling everything we've said for the last 12 chapters. All of the emphasis that we have placed on the finished work of Christ, the fact that the law is not something that we are subject to or will be evaluated upon in terms of our achievement, would appear to somehow be unraveling. And yet what we'll see at the end is the love we have for the law is a love that is manifest because of the gratitude for all that Christ has done for us, the natural and, I would say, supernatural obedience that comes from being in Christ. In fact, all of this is pushing toward these imperatives that do, in fact, tell you how to live, not to earn your salvation or embellish your salvation or pay back what you owe for your salvation, but rather to demonstrate, display, and make spectacular your salvation in a world that is fueled by anything but love. So, beloved, let's look at these verses this morning. I'm going to take us just through verses 1 to 6, and there is an overarching statement right at the beginning, and then we'll get into sort of our outline. And the overarching statement is this, let brotherly love continue. All of the doctrine is pointing to this, to this brotherly love. It is literally in the original, if you were to transliterate the Greek, the word Philadelphia. No, many of you have heard that before. It is the combination of philos, the loving for a friend, and adelphos, which is brother. Literally, Philadelphia let abide. That's the statement there at the beginning. And that is verse 1. Philadelphia, let it abide. Let it remain. This is absolutely critical because of all the things that could be said of all the things that you could put at the center, of all of the things that manifest a genuine conversion, instead of truth or grace or anything else, he chooses love. Why? Because love is literally the root and the fruit of the Christian walk. Now, why does he say that it should abide or it should remain? The answer is that it's already there. He doesn't say create it. He doesn't say produce it. He says, make sure it remains, because you've already got it. It was given to you at conversion. Do you realize that? That one of the gifts you were given when you became a Christian is you were given a special kind of love that you didn't have before. You were given a special kind of love to show to others, and you don't have to go around trying to figure out where it is and how to get it and how to cultivate it. You don't have to go around trying to figure out a way to get this kind of love. This kind of love is already there. It's in you. And the author is saying to these believers... Be careful to allow it to remain. And it was guided, I believe, in two directions. One is the brotherly love they would show to their cultural ethnic brothers who were the Jews. Remember, this is Hebrews. Hebrews was written to Hebrews, and Hebrews were Jews. And the real brotherly connection here may have been, at least in the start, towards their brothers who were Jewish brothers. Yes, your love is to remain. You don't go back to their religion, don't go back to their ceremony, don't abandon the gospel, don't forsake Christ, 
but love your Jewish brethren. And because it was from those very Jewish brethren that Messiah came. But even more so, he says, I want you to love your Christian brethren. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women. They're the ones that ultimately you're supposed to show this brotherly love for. Now, let me be clear at the outset, this is brotherly love. He doesn't say agape. You know the agape love, right? That's that, that unconditional love. If you've been reading through the devotional we gave you uh, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that type of love, what is love, describing love, that love is agape love. It's a different word for love. This here is a very, a very um, sort of boots on the ground kind of uh, familial, friendly sort of love that you show to one another. And this is the love that exists not only to the other brothers who are ethnically Jewish, but also the brothers within the church. He says to love your brothers over everything else. Love the church. It transcends every other affinity or connection. Everything else. Now, how does this look? I'm going to give you four examples, okay? This is where brotherly love demonstrates itself. There are four examples here in the text. It's going to come in your home. It's going to come in your reputation, in your marriage, and in your money. Your home, your reputation, your marriage, and your money. So let's look, first of all, at your home. Look at verse 2. He says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. At the beginning, it's a clear command. Do not neglect this. Why are you told not to neglect it? Because it's very easy to neglect it. It's the very same thing about earlier in chapter 10 where he says, do not neglect assembling together as the church. Why does he have to tell the church to come together? Because in those days there was persecution and it costs you something to come to church. As I said to you in the time where we preached that sermon to you, I really don't think that applies to us today because there is no cost for you to be here. There is no cost to gather together. They would have no category in their way of thinking for a Christian to voluntarily choose not to be with other Christians at a location in person with the church on the Lord's day. In their context, it could cost you your resources, your reputation, and possibly your life. So he says, don't neglect coming together. Likewise here, there was a cost to loving, and he says, don't neglect showing hospitality. The word hospitality is the word love of strangers. Literally, the word uh, phileo, that, that brotherly love, and xenon. Uh, you've heard of the opposite of this, which is xenophobia, right? A fear of people who are not like you, a fear of aliens, a fear of immigrants, a fear of people who are not of the same cultural background as you, a fear of people speaking a different language, fear of strangers. This is the opposite. This is love for those people. Christian love is demonstrated in your love for aliens, not extraterrestrials. We live in such a weird age, I've got to clarify that, but for aliens, for the immigrants, for the ones who are not like you, who don't look like you, who have different cultural backgrounds than you, people you might be naturally afraid of or even repulsed by. The love that is shown is the love to them, a love to strangers. One old proverb said that this type of love is the love that turns a stranger into friends. Now, the reason for this is that whereby some have entertained angels unawares. Of course, this goes back to the story of Abraham when he unintentionally not only showed hospitality to angels, but to God himself. But the command here is not to neglect hospitality, not to neglect a love for aliens. 
Uh, This is more than just showing love to the people that you already know. Uh, This is not a command to do more entertaining. Now, we all love to do entertaining. We all love to have our friends and family over and to put out a big spread and to enjoy the fellowship and to uh, spend time together. That's great. That's wonderful. Uh, I would in no way encourage you to stop doing that, but don't confuse that with hospitality. Hospitality is a love for strangers. Hospitality is opening up your doors like that to people you don't know, to people that you're not familiar with. There's a certain amount of risk here. There's a certain amount of expense. In fact, one of the things that we have to remember is that in the context that this was originally given, the people would have known hospitality only as this. In fact, it was something that was central to their culture. If you've ever done traveling, and I I don't mean to be insulting of our culture, but I would say almost anywhere else in the world, hospitality is something that you have received. Hospitality is something that was central. Hospitality was something that everyone expected from everybody else. I know that because I personally received it when I've been in Russia or when I've been in China or when I've been in the Philippines. I understand what it means to go into a complete stranger's home, and I don't even mean Christian strangers, and to receive from them genuinely gracious hospitality. And this was amplified to the nth degree, perhaps to an extreme in ancient Arab or Bedouin culture, the culture in which the scriptures were originally given. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. I want to bring you back into that culture. I'm not interested in trying to make the scriptures suit you and I today. I'm interested in making us suited back to the scriptures. I don't need to try to make scripture relevant to us today. I need to help us become relevant to then. That's how you're going to understand it, because without context, there's really no hope in really understanding what's being written here. So let's go back in time. What was it like and what is it still like in much of the Arab world? First of all, it was completely unacceptable to eat alone. People in those days would come to the evening mealtime, and if they were alone, they would literally go to a high place and they would call out three times, inviting the men of the city to come and eat with them if they had no one else to eat with. You didn't eat alone. In fact, Job 31:17 alludes to this when he says, or have I eaten my morsel myself alone and the fatherless has not eaten thereof? He says, have I sat down and eaten my food by myself when somebody out there was eating alone? It was customary. It was indicative of somebody who knew what hospitality meant. You have to understand that many times people did believe that God had sent the guests not just because of what Abraham did, but just in general. They, they assumed that if a, if a guest had come into your town, your city, that they had been sent there by God, and so they would receive them enthusiastically. They loved to receive them and to entertain them. In fact, it is said of Abraham when the guests came to him in Genesis 18 that he ran to meet the three men, that he hastened into the tent and to Sarah to say, help me get some food ready. He ran to the herd. He fetched a calf. He hastened to prepare it. Just a side note here, men. The hospitality that was going on wasn't just a hospitality that fell upon the wife Some of you are saying, I love being hospitable. I invite people over all the time. And my wife does all the cooking. Men, get better at hospitality. You've got lots of biblical examples. Learn to cook something. Learn to kill something and cook it. All right? (laughs) 
Learn to prepare food. Learn to be hospitable. Don't dump the responsibility on your wife. That's not what it says here. You be hospitable. You go out and find people. You look after them. We were having a conversation about this at our dinner table last night, and we were just saying how clearly there are, there are examples where maybe one spouse has, has a little more ability in one area than the other. I, I, would, I would certainly add, if you came over to my home and I was doing all the cooking, it would be very different. It wouldn't be as good. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to have any awareness of this or understanding. This goes for you as well, and I know that because elders are called to be hospitable, aren't they? One of the definitions of an elder. So we need to be able to show love for strangers. This goes for men and for women. Look at Abraham as your example. But this was shown to friends, to strangers, and even to enemies. In the old culture that this was originally given to, it was shown, of course, to friends. I need to remind you that this was written to these uh, Jewish believers, and many scholars think it was in the city of Rome, or they were at least among Romans in the Roman Empire. One of the common practices in the Roman Empire, if you were to dine with friends, especially if someone was a stranger but they became a friend, is that upon their departure, uh, you would give them a clay tile or a stone, and you would both write your names on either side of that tile or that stone, and it would be broken. And they would take half, and you would retain half. And it meant to symbolically say that, that there was always that fellowship between the two of you. There was always that friendship In fact, it was customary that those stones with the names written on it would be handed down to the next generation. In fact, uh, that even happens today, doesn't it? I have some friends, good friends of mine, let's say, that live up in the L.A. area, and they now have sons and daughters that are adults, and I have sons and daughters that are adults, and my sons and daughters and their sons and daughters could come together and enjoy fellowship right away. There'd be an immediate relationship because of the bond that their parents had. It was intergenerational. It was a beautiful thing. You go to a foreign town and you stay with the sons and the grandsons of the friend that you made 30 years ago. What a precious thing. It was common among friends. But again, that is really something more of the entertainment than the hospitality. That is what we see perhaps in Revelation chapter 2. 2 and verse 17, where we read this, and he will give to them a white stone, and in the stone a new name that is written on it. I I think that's a reference to that practice, that that Christ himself puts his name on one side and our name on the other, and we're bound together that way as friends eternally. But it was also extended to strangers. There was that statement I made earlier, a proverb in the ancient world, that every stranger is an invited guest. What you would do is come evening time, you would sit at the entrance to your tent. That's where we found Abraham in Genesis 18. He wasn't just sitting there because he had nothing else to do. He wasn't just sitting there because there was no TV. He was sitting there because there was a common practice. And as the sun was going down and it was the time for the evening meal, you would go to your tent and you would look out and your eyes would scan the horizon to see if there was anybody walking by that you might invite in to enjoy a meal to show hospitality. This is what's in view here in Hebrews 13. I think it's what's in view in Romans 12, verse 13. But something you might find interesting is that it was even extended to enemies. Even enemies, so, so vital was hospitality in the ancient world that you were expected to show it even to your enemy. I came across this one quote in a researcher who said this, quote, once dismounted and, and they've touched the rope of a single tent, the person is safe. That even if your enemy, if they, 
get off of their camel and they come and they touch the rope of your tent, the expectation was that you would even show them hospitality. Remember when Jesus says, love your enemies? It's the context. Show love even towards those who are your enemy. Now, if they didn't make it to your tent or touch anything, you could probably kill them in the front yard. But by the time they got to the tent, it was like, nope, I'm in. I'm safe. I tagged. They also probably left early in the morning before you got up. But here's the point. Even your enemy was to receive hospitality. They were usually kept in the first section of the tent. This is the entrance area. That's where the cooking was done. Men were in one tent. Women were in another. The men were in the men's tent, Abraham's tent, when Sarah overheard what they were saying and began to laugh about it, remember? But this was the practice. Now, what happened when you showed this kind of hospitality? If you'll bear with me just a little bit longer, you might find this interesting. When you showed up, it would begin with bowing. Now, this isn't bowing the way you see bowing done, let's say, you know, when you're watching an episode of The Crown. This isn't when you just kind of walk in and you stand up straight, you do a quick little head nod. It's not one of those. This was like a a really, you know, fully engaged kind of bowing. You would uh, keep the top half of your body straight and you would bend over as far as you possibly could and you would take your hands and you would go and you would place them over your heart and over your mouth and over your forehead and you were saying to that person who was hosting you and the person who was hosting you would do this back to you that my heart and my voice and my mind, they are all here in your service. It was a common custom. We see examples of it in many places in the Scriptures where people would come before another and they would bow in reverence. Now, sometimes a person is told, stop doing that, don't worship me. But even that word worship is really a word that means to show ultimate reverence. It wasn't necessarily worship in the sense of worshiping a divinity, but somebody might say, I'm just not worthy of that kind of respect. You don't need to do that. But this kind of of bowing down, this kind of subjecting oneself to another was very common. It leveled the playing field between the two people that were involved. Then the host would say to that person, peace be on you, and the guest would respond, and on you, peace. We see examples of that, for example, in Luke chapter 10, when the Lord says, go into these various cities and bring the gospel, and if the person welcomes you in peace, if there's peace in that household, stay, and if they don't, move on. It was exactly the tradition that was being spoken of here. The expectation is that you would show that kind of hospitality to strangers. That's as far as we'll take it for this morning. There is much more that I could say about the practice of kissing each other and removing your shoes and being offered a drink and sharing a meal and dipping a portion of the food before handing it to somebody and making the guest the lord of your house and privacy and protection and abuses related to hospitality. But that'll have to wait for another sermon. There's a lot involved in this, and it's far more than just what we sometimes call hospitality. So, opening up your home to what love looks like. Number two, your reputation. Look at verse three. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. This word remember is a very precious word. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean to, to remember them as if maybe you'd forgotten. It's an intentional remembering. It's a turning your mind back to them. It's most often used in the Old Covenant Scriptures for God remembering somebody. Not because He's ever forgotten, but because He turns His attention back to them. Uh, when He turns His attention, let's say, back to Joseph who had been languishing in prison. 
When he turns his attention to the rainbow and to the world and says that that moment I remember, I turn my attention to my covenant that I will never again destroy the world by a flood. It's an intentional turning of your mind in remembering. And this was done, we are told, to those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them. Now that was very possible if you were a Hebrew Christian because there was a great degree of risk. For you to be a Christian in those days not only meant the plundering of your property, as we saw earlier, it also meant the abuses that would be hurled upon you by the state, the deprivation of rights, and the ability perhaps to be brought up on some false charge, convicted, and find yourself in prison. So you are to deliberately turn your attention to those who are in prison, to those who are mistreated. It's an important word. It usually means to suffer at the hands of somebody else in an unjust manner. Don't you for a moment believe that just because, by God's grace, we live in a nation that is generally controlled by the rule of law, that it will be like that forever, or that it will always apply in the case of Christians? Don't think for a moment that this world, ultimately controlled by the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil, will allow justice to reign for those whom he hates. Justice, as much as we appeal to it by the decree of Scripture as one of the layers that we would appeal to in terms of trying to find justice, even though we're instructed to do that, don't for a moment assume that it will always stand or that it will always be done in your favor. It wasn't the case for much of redemptive history. It is presently not the case in much of the rest of the world. Christians are imprisoned unjustly all the time in places all over the world. And in the case of the Hebrew Christians, that was happening for them here in Rome. Now, Rome was surprisingly open. Rome was much like America in the sense that it wasn't founded on any particular religion. In fact, the founders of Rome went out of their way to make it a deliberately pluralistic society without a dominant religion, which is actually why many of the founders of this nation look back to Rome as their model and example. And if you've had a chance to study any of that history, you you know what I'm talking about. Frankly, it's, it affects even our architecture in our nation's capital. But the reality is, there wasn't one religion. However, because Christians were considered so bizarre and so outside the norm, and their practices were so unpopular in the Roman world, they could be brought to trial on other charges, not just for being a Christian, but for sedition, for a lack of loyalty to the emperor. Uh, for a lack of willingness to participate in the, the pagan rituals. And that's why they were dragged in, for example, to the Colosseum and torn apart by wild animals. And not necessarily for their religion, but for their lack of willingness to conform to the culture. And so here, many of them were in prison, and uh, we're going to spend more time talking about this next week because the same word for remember is applied to remembering your leaders. We'll see that in verse 7, and I think it's because many of the leaders were themselves in prison as a consequence of being leaders of the church. So I'm going to just pause there for a moment in elaborating on the prison situation in the first century because we'll pick that up next week. But notice here, the connection is to be with those who are in prison and mistreated since you are in the body. Body there, it's the word soma in the Greek. It's not the word sarx for flesh. You're in the body of Christ. You're, you're with them. You're one of them. Uh, you have a unity as it were. Therefore, you should be willing to share in their sufferings because you share in the same body of Christ. So it affects your home, it affects your reputation, 
Your love for the brethren also thirdly affects your marriage. Now, this is very interesting, and I want you to to listen carefully to this, just in case maybe you've uh, drifted. Come on back, because you're going to find this very interesting. He says here in verse 4, let marriage uh, be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Brotherly love is to be shown in marriage. Marriage, in the time when this was being written, especially in the Roman Empire, was not about love. Marriage was about money. It was about status. It was about climbing the social ladder. Marriage was what you used to satisfy your ability to increase your own prominence among other people and to sire legitimate children. Everything else was satisfied through adultery, sexual immorality, and pagan ritual. You could say that marriage in the time of the writing of this epistle or the preaching of this sermon was about climbing the social ladder. Satisfying your lust was to be found in the brothel. Although romantic love between husbands and wives was attested to in a few existing letters, though very, very few, most of what is known about the expression of romantic love in the Roman Empire comes from poets who are in praise of the women or the young boys that they were involved with sexually, usually in extramarital affairs on the part of one or both. Almost every example we have of Roman poetry, of Roman expressions of love, was the expression of love from a married man to a prostitute, either male or female, and there was virtually no distinction made in the Roman Empire between heterosexual and homosexual sexual immorality. It is only the women, and specifically the wives, that were expected to have any kind of virtue when it came to sexual ethics. According to one historian, quote, women were praised for their home and married life. Their virtues included sexual fidelity, a sense of decency, love for her husband, marital concord, devotion to family, fertility, beauty, cheerfulness, and happiness as, as exemplified by the power of the father, the husband, who in Rome was the ultimate ruler of the family. This idea of pater familias, the idea of the patriarchal society where the husband ruled over the wife and the children was a distinctly pagan notion. It was distinctly anti-biblical. It is true that husbands have responsibilities, including the provision and the protection of their family, but it was not like it was in the Roman Empire. That was a distortion of that principle. Sexual relations within the people that were receiving this letter, these Hebrew believers, these Christians, these people persecuted by living within this Roman Empire, the sexual relationships that would have surrounded them were defined by the pairings of 12 gods who modeled what the appropriate sexual and marital behavior was to be like. So there were these six divine couples, and every one of these 
deities. Every one of these gods had their own temple. They had their own place where you would go to worship them, uh, where you would go to engage in sexually immoral liaisons with the uh, temple prostitutes that, that worked in those temples. And they were set apart to either the couple or to the individual gods, and the couples were these. You had Jupiter and Juno, Neptune and Minerva, Mars and Venus, Apollo and Diana, Vulcan and Vesta, and Mercury and Ceres. Vulcan and Vesta. Vesta is the one who would have uh, what you may have heard before, the Vestal Virgins. You ever heard that term before? These were women who had set themselves apart temporarily in some form of religious chastity, but for the most part, the rest were prostitutes. It was really nothing but a brothel. And so you had an entire nation that was deriving their sexual ethics from the pagan deities. Uh, One of the ways in which you worshiped them was to go and be engaged in this sexual immorality, and this was very common among the men. And so the state religion, the state-sponsored religion, was there to honor the gods, and the gods blessed the state. So the more you engaged in this sort of debauchery, the more the state would be blessed. They would literally tell you that the more you go to these temples, the more you worship these false gods, the better it is for Rome. So adherence to the models of these gods was considered vital to the health, the prosperity of the nation. It was your patriotic duty to sleep with temple prostitutes. Men were free to and almost expected to engage in extramarital affairs with women, with young boys, and with other men as long as their partners were not free-born Roman citizens. That was the only restriction. And as you know uh, from any of your reading in the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered free-born citizens during some parts of their history 10 to 1. There was no problem finding these people. Sex was considered a natural and normal aspect of life, and so there was no distinction between hetero or homosexual sex. Uh, There was not even a linguistic recognition between the two. Therefore, anything you wanted could be enjoyed as long as it was between the two willing parties. One historian said this, quote, Husbands frequently visited prostitutes in brothels, or encountered them at parties or festivals, prostitution, male and female, was not only legal but considered as natural an aspect of society as employing people to sweep the streets and clean out the latrines. Prostitutes were naturally considered low-class individuals, but so were dancers, actors, gladiators, and singers. Respectable social status was reserved for those who fit neatly into the paradigm of the social hierarchy, and those people were always married. Why is the writer to the Hebrews focused on marriage? He's focused on marriage because marriage itself had been perverted into something that existed for one reason and one reason only in the Roman Empire to provide a thin veil of goodness to an otherwise completely corrupt institution for the sole purpose of making you look good in society and siring legitimate children who could inherit your wealth and be married off to other children in order to increase your family wealth. Being married in that society was not very different than a politician these days being married just because it looks better when you're married to somebody. Perhaps you'll get more votes. At least that's how it used to be when you could easily buy off certain voting blocks because you look decent and respectable. 
Let's understand a little bit more about marriage if we can to the context of what's being written to these believers. There were really three kinds of marriage. Uh, the first kind was a marriage that was called literally with spelt. Uh, it was more of the traditional way of getting married. Uh, there was a ceremony in which a spelt cake uh, would be presented by the couple. It was something that they would share. Uh, sometimes it's also called a marriage by hand because the bride was given by her father uh, into the hand of the groom. Most of what we celebrate today in our cultural marriages have come from this Roman practice. Uh, because in order for that wedding to happen, there would be flowers that would adorn the area, uh, both the houses of the bride and the groom. There would be blessings that were pronounced. You would have it done in a public place in order for it to be legal. It would happen just after sunrise to symbolize the new life that they were embarking on together. Uh, there had to be ten witnesses. There was a priest there who was present but didn't preside over the wedding. One of the matrons would actually join the hands of the two together. There would be vows, but note this, it was only the wife who gave the vow. It was a one-way vow. Wife made a vow to the husband, the husband made no vow to the wife. How would you like that? And this was the vow. When and where you are, Gaius, then there I am, Gaius. And that wasn't just because it was Gaius. That's what they said every time. No matter who you were marrying, you called him Gaius. Now, it was a popular name back then, but this just goes to prove it. You would say that to the man, and then that was it. You were officially married. The vow then is always given, no matter what the couple's names, and the offering after that was made to Jupiter. Then they would eat cake together, and you would send someone home with a piece of cake. Not very different from what we have today. Again, much of our tradition comes from the ancient Roman world. Now, that was the normal wedding with spelt. There was a couple of others. You could get married by purchase, which meant if you were a plebeian, if you were a commoner, you could simply purchase your bride. And then the other was by use. It was called a marriage, basically, where two people had been living together long enough that it was common law. But the respectable marriage the marriage by hand, the giving of the bride, or the marriage of cake. I also find this interesting. I'll just make this mention before I move on, but uh, this came from one historian, quote, the minimum legal age for a girl to be married is 12, and for a boy, 15, but most men married later, around the age of 26. This was because males were thought to be mentally unbalanced between the ages of 15 and 25. They were thought to be ruled entirely by their passions and unable to make sound judgments. You know, some things never change. But what does this have to do with the believers there? Well, go back to the text, and I want to apply all this now that we know the context. Notice what he says, let marriage. The word marriage, by the way, every other time it's used in the New Testament, is a reference to the actual marriage, the actual ceremony, going to a marriage. So you could literally translate this, let getting married be held in honor among all. He's writing this to a people that lived in a culture where marriage had been utterly and completely corrupted. Let marriage, real marriage, biblical marriage, let it be honored by all. 
All of you within the church, don't allow yourself to be corrupted by the Roman definition of marriage. It's not just for the purpose of raising legitimate children and increasing your family status and wealth. It is there because God has ordained it. It is not something that exists in connection with your sense of freedom to go and satisfy your sexual desires outside of marriage, to find your passionate love, your erotic love, your, your uh, uh, love that, that, that would cause you to say the things that a poet would say somewhere outside of your home and just to have a, a wife for the sake of outward appearances. Let it be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's an adjective, literally means without stain. And I feel compelled to say this morning that I have read enough and heard enough sermons on this subject to believe that there is a rather widespread misunderstanding and misapplication of this text, meaning that the takeaway tends to be something along the lines of, hey, as long as you're married, whatever you do in bed together is fine, so have at it. Now, that is not what the text is saying. And I've heard some very respectable, godly pastors basically arrive at that conclusion, but my concern is that without the context, you might get there, but that's certainly not what is being said in the context, and that opens up the door for a lot of potentially damaging aspects of marriage to thrive, in fact, uh, even abusive in the wrong situation. So what does this really mean? Let me tell you what I think it means. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, meaning those of you who would be tempted to defile or stain your marital relationship need to be careful never to do anything that would literally bring into that marriage bed something that would defile it. I think this is an address more particularly to the men because it was customarily and culturally acceptable for them to go around and do things outside of marriage that their wives were not allowed to do and then bring that into the marriage bed. As the great song put it, you've been all over and it's been all over you. There are people who have been all over and everything they're allowed to do out there means that whatever's out there is now all over them and they're bringing that in and they're defiling and staining that relationship that they have with their spouse. So this is a clear command to these believers. Don't you think that you can go out there and pervert your mind and your body and then bring that into your marriage relationship with your spouse. That's what defiles the bed. The bed is defiled by men whose minds are defiled by pornography, whose bodies are defiled by adultery. That is why the four clause at the end is described as God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It is the sexually immoral, and the adulteress who bring that into the marriage bed and defile it, defile their spouse, defile the bed, defile the relationship, and therefore treat Christian marriage as if it's no better than pagan Roman marriage. Do not allow yourself to defile your marriage. If you are to show brotherly and sisterly love within the body of Christ, it starts in your marriage. The brethren whom you are closest to is the one you're married to. Does that make sense? 
If love the brethren applies to other Christians, the brethren you're closest to is the brethren you're sleeping with. That's the relationship into which that kind of love should pour into. Not just the brotherly love, also the agape love, but that is the place. Frankly, in the Roman world, there were three kinds of love, and I think all three ought to be present and expressed there. Agape, phileo, and eros. Your erotic love needs to be channeled into that relationship, and far be it from us as Christians to suggest that because we're Christians, we don't understand what erotic love is. Erotic love is pulled out from the perversion of the world and made something spectacular within the context of a Christian marriage. It is the one love that ought to be recaptured for the good that God intended it to be. That's why he gave us the Song of Songs. Well, much more we could say about that, but let's move on to the subject you're all waiting for, and that is your money. We talked about your home. We talked about your reputation. We'll develop that a little bit more next week, and now it's your marriage. Let's talk about your money. You see, in the, in the ancient world, people were very free with their bodies and tight with their money, and Christians were told to be free with your money and not with your body. This is a total paradigm shift for them. And so, notice what it says. Keep, verse 5, your life free from the love of money. That's a, an imperative. It's up to you. You've got to do it. It's your your duty, it's your job, it's your responsibility. That's not being legalistic. It's just saying that's the expectation. As a Christian, you're supposed to keep your life free from the love of money, literally the love of silver. I think the better translation here is covetousness. Covetousness. The love of silver. There was two types of commodities back then uh, in terms of money. Uh, if you weren't trading animals or bales of wheat, you were trading either gold or silver. Gold was a store of wealth. No one walked out with a gold bar when they went to the market. You know, gold was like your long-term holdings. Silver was what you would use every day. Silver is what you would do your transactions with. So the love of silver, the, the covetousness, having stuff that other people have. I uh, look back at the 10th commandment, right? Uh, Thou shalt not be covetous of anything, of a man's wife or of his home or of his animals. Anything that he's got, you're not supposed to be covetous of. You shouldn't wish that you had it. And be content instead with what you have. Notice the opposite of being covetous is being content. The way you know you don't love something is if you're content with it. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? The way you know you don't love it is you're content with it. But what he means here is the way that you know that you're not obsessed with this, that you're not pursuing this, you're not, you're not coveting it in an unhealthy way, is that you're content with what God has given you. For he himself, you could say that in the translation, it's so important, it's emphatic. He himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You could literally translate that because the negatives are piled up in the original language, and I love this. You could literally translate that, never, not, you I will leave, nor, never, not, you I will forsake. One day, I would like to see someone translate the Bible literally, because you would just stumble all over that, wouldn't you? You get to that verse and it would be like, uh, yeah, never not you I will leave, nor never not you I will forsake. And you stop and go, that's awkward. Yeah, it's meant to be. It's meant to be blessedly, wonderfully, gloriously awkward because he's piling on the confidence. Never, never, never. 
Never, no, never, no, never forsake. The author of the hymn didn't do that because he had a few beats left and had run out of words. What am I going to say here? I'll just repeat until we get to the chorus. No, he's quoting this. Where does it come from? Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8 is where we get this from. Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8. The promise that God gives to his people as they go into the land. I will never, never, never forsake you. So, verse 6, again quoting from Psalm 56, which I mentioned earlier today. Wraps it up with this statement. So, we can confidently say, quote, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. He's quoting Psalm 56, verse 4, which comes from a psalm that David wrote in celebration of the way that God had rescued him. In fact, if you look over at Psalm 51, I will do this, I will do this quickly. Um, but just Psalm, I'm sorry, 56. Go over at Psalm 56. You do know that the, the preamble to each of these is, is inspired by God as well. It's not just added by the editor. So the beginning of Psalm 56, the first verse in the Hebrew Scriptures which is why they're always off by one, if you look at a Hebrew transliteration, it says this, to the choir master, according to the dove on the far, uh, far off terebinths, that's the, the tune, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He wrote this in response to the situation that occurred when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Now, I know that might be something that's right on the forefront of your mind, and I don't need to remind you, but just in case, maybe you've forgotten. 1 Samuel chapter 21, I'm just going to refer to it. It's a very short account, and it's humorous. So there's nothing better than weaving in something both short and humorous when you've already preached almost an hour. Um, so he says this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Oh no, this is David, the great warrior. This is the guy who kills ten thousands of people. We don't want him here. Let's get rid of him. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors. And there's a really sort of gross way in which he did that, which is evident in the text, but I won't get into here. But he used what was at his disposal and he made marks. He filled the area with, with it was excrement. And let his spittle and drool run down his beard. And then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? I love this. The king says to them, Why have you brought this madman to me? And my favorite, verse 15. Do I lack madmen? <laughs> Every leader is like, I know what he's thinking. Like, really? Is there a shortage of crazy people in my kingdom? Did I, did I tell you, hey, you know what? I am, I'm running low on crazy people. Can you go get me some? Call up the neighboring king. Hey, you got any extra crazy people you could send over? Because, man, Gath has gotten real peaceful lately. Do I really need this, he writes, he says, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? What did David do? He rescued himself by acting like a crazy person. And then he writes a psalm about it. 
And he doesn't say, I was so brilliant, look what I did. I was so smart, I came up with that idea. He gives God the glory for rescuing him. That's why he says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And I want you to be very careful not to just pass over that word helper. It's the word baethos. It's only used here in one other place, a form of it, in Hebrews 2, verse 18, the word helper. It's a word that means to have strength to rescue. It's a word that comes from two words, to cry out and then to run. It is to run to the one who is crying out. It is used of the Canaanite woman who cries out for help and Jesus brings her child back to life. To the father who cries out to Jesus for help because his son has a demon. It is the word that is used for the help that is in the Macedonian call, come and help us. It is the word used for the Jews that wanted to have an uprising against the followers of Jesus where they say, come and help us in Acts 21. Acts 27, 17, it's used for the help, which is the supports that hold a ship up. It is used to describe what the earth did when it opened up and it swallowed a river in Revelation 12. It is used of the kind of help that is brought when God intervenes. It is the Greek word for the Hebrew word azer, which is the word to describe the helper that Eve was to Adam. 22 times in the Old Testament, the word azer is used. Only twice of a woman. The rest, it is used of God. It's God's help. Far be it from us to assume that women or wives are there for no other purpose but to help men. God did not create women to be wives. God did not create a woman because Adam needed a wife. God created the woman because the man on his own could not represent the image of God. When it says that it was not good for man to be alone, it is not because man on his own is some buffoon who needs some primary caregiver. In fact, it's disgraceful in my opinion when men today make themselves out to be so radically incompetent that whenever their wives leave town for a weekend, everyone seems to think the whole household is going to fall apart. I mean, men, don't propagate some idea that you're utterly and completely useless. That dishonors the image of God that you bear. No, you are quite remarkable in your manliness. I read a wonderful book last week called No Apologies. Subtitle is something like, Why the World Needs Men. Men need to be men. And women are women. And women were created because without women, the image of God is not properly demonstrated in the world. Now, there is a husband and a wife And together they function in a way that brings glory to God, but they don't bring more glory to God because they're married. You don't bring more glory to God because you're a wife or a mother. You bring glory to God because you bear His image. Your identity is not in being a wife and a mother. Your identity is being in Christ. That's where the glory comes from. And far be it from us to train even Christian women to think that the highest and greatest calling in their life is to be a wife and mother and to just sort of pine away until the right boy arrives. No education, no independence. There's a bizarre movement propagated by some truly crazy people that have since been discredited. One of them was a guy, I think it was called Vision Forum, was the name of his hyper-headship homeschool movement. But this is also propagated by people like Vody Bauckham and others called uh, uh, stay-at-home daughters. 
basically that women are of no use until they can be married off to, to basically bear as many children as their bodies will allow. Brothers and sisters, that does not honor the image of God in woman. There's nothing wrong at all with wanting to be a wife and a mother. Praise God for women who want to be wives and mothers. And if God has given you that responsibility, be an amazing wife and be an amazing mother. But if you're here today and you are not a wife or a mother, or you don't particularly desire to be, may I rescue you from whatever shame has been heaped upon you intentionally or unintentionally by the Christian community that's made you think somehow you're a lesser person? You're not. (laughs) You bear the image of God. You realize you're already a helper? You're already that Azer Konegdo? You're already that one who rescues males? Because males on their own don't bear the image of God completely. Men need women, and women need men. And neither one ought to celebrate this notion that somehow they're worthless without the other. Now listen, when you look at this from that perspective... And you begin to see the way that God describes the helper. You'll begin to understand why there is never an example anywhere in the scripture of a wife's helping, as it were, within the household being described by this word. This word is never used for domestic service. The reason is because domestic service was done by domestic servants. If you needed someone to clean, you had a slave. If you needed someone to cook, you had a slave. If you need someone to cook and clean, you don't have a wife for that. The wife was merely the one who completed the husband in terms of creating the family unit into which one could bring children. It is never used of domestic help and service. So that word azer, that word baethos, so significant here ascribed to God himself as your rescue. Consider that, men, next time you sort of casually and glibly Refer to your wife as your helper. The first woman was designed by God to provide the valuable and vital strength and assistance to her husband within a relationship of unity and mutuality. And praise God for women like Abigail who disobeyed her stupid husband and in so doing rescued her whole family and household and rescued David from committing an atrocity. Beloved, if we understand brotherly love, it's going to be exhibited in the way that we show Christ our love in our homes, in our reputation, in our marriages, and with our money freely used to accomplish that which has eternal significance. Over the next several weeks, we'll continue to flesh this out. Now, may the Lord Give us his grace to understand and to obey. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths this morning. I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would grant us the grace to obey, the grace to understand, the humility to receive the correction that many of us must receive, and then the desire to go forth clothed in the righteousness that you give us propelled by the hope that in the end you will make all things right and new and good, and compelled by the love of Christ that you gave us. Oh, we thank you. 
that you will never, no, never, no, never forsake us. In your name we pray and all God's people say, amen.